As you're seated, we come then to consider the preaching of God's Word from Luke 17, and you'll notice we're considering verses 31 through 37. This is brought to us because of that demand that's mentioned in verse 20 of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come. And we've considered thus far already from the larger portion that Christ answers not precisely the question that's put to them, him, but rather presents to them that which they need to consider well. And so we've considered how Christ says, listen, it's not merely that my kingdom will come, but it already has come. It is here. There's a way in which my kingdom is already present. Not in the fullest display that shall come to pass, but as he's said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, with outward display, the kingdom of God is, verse 21, within or among you. It's here. I'm the king. I've brought my kingdom. And yet, as he goes on to testify, there is a sense in which my kingdom is not yet fully arrived. So he mentions his own suffering, verse 25. And then after that, he mentions what will come to pass. Even as we considered last week, verse 30 Thus it shall be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, this morning we look at what follows, verses 31 through 37. Having read that, notice what's mentioned to focus our thoughts, verses 32 and 33. Christ says, Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. What's instructive here is that in this passage from 31 through 37, Christ is not merely lecturing in a dry fashion about the truth to come. He's actually exhorting with earnestness saying, take heed to this, pay attention to this, look me in the eye, listen to what I'm saying, pay attention earnestly. And he's not just wanting them to learn an academic lesson doesn't want them to be able to sit and say, yep, I've got it and I can repeat it, regurgitate it and say, here, I understand it. Notice he says, remember Lot's wife. Now we read about Lot's wife. We'll return to that in a moment. But then he makes a universal application. So from this particular instance, and in light of the coming judgment, he says, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. By the way, that's actually helping us understand what Lot's wife was doing. She was looking back with a yearning, wanting to preserve what she had in Sodom, wanting to hold on to what she had in the city being destroyed. And Christ is saying, whoever does that shall lose his life. But whoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Now, it's worth our noting, as we've touched on in the past, that this is speaking particularly of the last judgment. There's truth. If you look at the parallel to this in Matthew chapter 24, there is a portion of Christ's teaching there that is dealing with the coming destruction to Jerusalem when the Romans would destroy it. But if you were to look at Matthew 24, you'd see that what is here before us is part of his teaching of the last day. And we don't need to look at Matthew 24 because you have it in verse 30 and 31. 
when, in the day, when the Son of Man is revealed, made known, when He is unveiled before all, right? The day when the Son of Man comes will be like, as we saw, the lightning, not just a little whisper, but the kind that brightens the whole sky. Everyone will see it. Everyone in the whole world will take note of it. Christ says, notice our text, verse 31, in that day, which day? The day that is his public unveiling, the day when every eye shall behold him, that day is what Christ is speaking of here. He's not speaking of, though he had spoken of in other times, that dreadful day of Jerusalem's destruction. He's speaking of that dreadful day of Christ's return. Now notice His language then in the text is pressing us to consider what our life should be like in light of that day. And so he uses proverbial expressions. He uses helpful insights to help us sense and feel and thus by his grace be moved to a proper approach to our life. He says, listen, in that day when he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Now this takes a little bit of understanding. You know, our houses typically have roofs that we don't climb upon. But in their day, of course, the roof was like a patio to us. It was flat. They would have the ability to sit and talk and have uh, an enjoyable time together. Much like we might go to our patio or backyard or front porch or whatever else. That was much the way in ancient days on the roof of their house and they would have external stairs and so it would be like going on a deck perhaps in our own day and he's saying we're not to think of it as if when judgment comes oh I want to cleave to the stuff and this is going to be made clear with Lot's wife and likewise if we're out in the field we're not to say oh the stuff that's being taken away he says no Rather, your whole approach is to be despising that stuff, turning away from that stuff in order to have that deliverance that Christ has presented. This is all understood by what he says in verse 32 and 33. Remember Lot's wife. Remember, she's brought out of the city of destruction. She's told strictly, don't look back. And she's behind Lot, the angel carrying them, driving them to the place of refuge. And as Sodom has the brimstone fall upon it, she cannot help because you see her heart is still in Sodom. She can't help but look back with a longing of what could have been, what she may have had, what she could have preserved. And though she was not locally in Sodom, Yet she took part in Sodom's judgment because she was by her look and longing identifying with Sodom regardless of how she had been brought out physically. Christ makes this application then. Whosoever shall seek to save his life, preserve his life, keep his life, whoever wants this to be their heaven, whoever wants this world to be their ongoing paradise, whoever says this is the best, I don't want nothing to interrupt it. I want all that the world has to offer, however rich or poor they are. Whoever would seek to hold on to this life, he says, shall lose it. 
Children, you can think of it this way for a moment. There are great ships in the ocean, and some of the anchors that are needed to uh, you know, keep those ships from moving weigh thousands of pounds. The chains are enormous. And you can think for a moment, being on that ship, and you can think for a moment, looking at the size of that anchor, and perhaps crawling on that anchor, and thinking, what an amazing sight this anchor is. And you're given privileged opportunity to bring friends to that anchor. See, look how big this thing is. Look how strong it is. Think of how amazing it is that such a thing exists. And you become, as it were, attached to that anchor. Well, think for a moment. What a fool it would be if you said, I'm never going to depart from this anchor. I'm going to hold on to this anchor. Whatever becomes of this anchor. And when the anchor is thrown overboard... If you would say, I want that anchor more than anything else, well, you would take part in the anchors plunging into the depths and finding your own destruction. But this is something of what Christ is getting at. When we look at the world and we say, look how amazing everything is. Look at the relationships. Look at the pleasures. Look at the joys. Look at the delights. Look at the beauties. This is what I want. You know, sometimes people speak of this. You know, what do you want? I want a long and happy life. Now, of course, there's something natural to us delighting in the good things of God. But when it is our hearts are so attached to the world, not just the sinful course of the world, but even the good things of the world, that when we hear the sentence of God saying, the world and all that in it, is under a curse unto judgment. And we say, no, I want that. That's what I want. Christ says, such a one will lose what they want. Whereas those who lose their life, who in this world say, as good as many things in the world are, as desirable as many things in the world are, yet I see something that's more desirable. And it's to that which I would cleave and hold. That they lose this life. The world looks at them and says, why don't you lighten up? Why don't you participate with us? Why don't you compromise your principles? Why don't you sort of uh, go around some of those narrow ways and enjoy the breadth of the broad way and the ease of the easy path? Why don't you join us in that? And the believer says, oh, I will not enjoy those things because I see something better. I see something more to be desired. And it's that upon which I have set my hope. The world says, well, you've lost it then. You've missed out on the purpose of life. And there's a sense in which the world says you've lost your life. But Christ says the one who does such shall preserve it. And then notice verses 34 through 36 Christ is saying such a day will separate people in the same class, in the same setting. Two men in one bed will be taken, another, the other left. Two women grinding, the one taken, the other left. They'll be participating in the same lawful callings. And yet, when the judgment comes, it will separate so clearly as a doctor's use of a scalpel. Separating that which is, you know, dead and uh, morbid from that which is living and vital, preserving his people while separating 
the others. Verse 37, the people ask, where, Lord? And he said, wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. There's something cryptic here. Eagles, not as we think of bald eagles, but more likely vultures, those which are drawn to the corpse will be gathered together. This will be a universal judgment. Wherever there is death, death shall be dealt, is his point. Well, there's much in this passage. There's this notion of the very clear and careful distinguishing that God makes of his people from unbelieving people and so on. But we wish to focus particularly on his exhortation, which is the main point of this passage. Remember, moving back to verse 22, he's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to those who have in profession and action said, I'm following Christ. I'm going to take up him as my master, as my Lord. I'm going to learn from him. I'm going to do as he says. I'm going to listen to him. And so though there is some sense in which those around him, perhaps the Pharisees still there, would hear him. This message is particularly for his disciples, those who by profession and action are in some sense following him. Now, this is helpful because he's exhorting his professed people. And when we see then him say, remember Lot's wife, several things click right away. Remember Lot brought out his wife. She was in some sense following after the counsel of God. She was in some sense being separated from the city of destruction. And yet, though that was true, inwardly she was still planted in Sodom and Gomorrah. Christ is getting at something that permeates the scriptures. That outward profession... And outward membership in God's covenant is not the same thing as true salvation. The covenant is that place, that way by which God administers the gospel and uh, protects and guides and directs and promises and commands with clarity. And those who, in one way or another, like Lot's wife, submit are made outwardly distinct from the rest of the world. But as John says elsewhere of those who turn back to the world, he says, you know, they were with us. They were among us. They were identified as God's people. But he says they were never truly of us. They weren't of our true nature. That's why they went back. And the same is true of Lot's wife. For the moment, if you were surveying the scene, you would have seen Lot and his wife and his two daughters and the angel driving them out and fleeing this place. And you would have said, look, there's the people that are distinct from the city of destruction. And yet, unbeknownst to you at that time, there was one among that people though outwardly distinct for a moment, who is still inwardly the same in desire with Sodom and Gomorrah. It was Lot's wife. So brethren, as we think on this truth, we want to look as Christ is impressing upon us, considering how this day should be lived in light of the last day. You can think of Lot's wife for a moment. How should her look have been in light of the destruction that was being administered. And likewise, how should our look be 
in light of the coming destruction and judgment that is to come to pass. The Lord is earnestly appealing to us that we, in other words, would lift our affections from the things of this world, and as Paul says, set them upon things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God in heaven. We'll consider then firstly this life over the last day. That is, this approach that some have of saying this life is the most important. And secondly, considering this life lived in light of the last day. So in the first point, we're considering what it is to live this life as if the day to come, the last day, is not all that significant. In the second point, we're looking at what is it to live this life in light of that last day, to be guided by that last day, to have, as it were, that day impressing upon us the way we live and move and speak and so on in our present day. So to the first now we look, this life over against the last day. Notice, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. So notice the goal of such as would treasure this life above the life to come. Their goal is to save or to preserve this life. It's not that there's not some acknowledgement that things are not as they should be. It's not as if there's not some acknowledgement that sure there's sin and so on. But where their affection is, is upon this world as it now is. They love this life. They love the way of this life. They tolerate the rebellion. Think for a moment of Lot's wife. She would have been privy to first-hand knowledge of not only the abominable sins that preceded the messengers of the Lord arriving at Lot's house, but she would have also been mindful of the very things that happened at Lot's doorway. That when these visitors came and the men of the city said, come, open unto us, give us this, these men that we can do with them as we want to know them and do all these abominable things and Lot pleading with them not to do so. She would have known these things. And yet, she still had a longing for that city. There's a complicit kind of agreement there. It's really not that big of a deal. I mean, it's, it's big and it's bad and so on. But why not live among such a place? I want my life the way it is there. That's where my daughters are and my sons-in-law. That's where my home is. That's where my happiness is. That's where my life is. That's what I want. I want to be back in Sodom. I want to be there in spite of the gross and abominable things. That's what I want. That's where I want to live. So the goal is to maintain that, to keep it, to enjoy it, to maintain it so long as the Lord should give life. This is the goal. And brethren, it's unfortunate that this is indeed the goal of many in our day. Now, we may say, well, we're not living in Sodom. And however wicked our nation is at present, we acknowledge that it's not as if a city in America is so far given over to sin that it's barreling onto a house to say, give us the visitors so that we can have these sinful 
relations with them, and so on. And yet, we ought to remember that there are gross and abominable things that are publicly protected and publicly professed as signs of you know, a liberal outlook on life, and so on. We could go through each of the Ten Commandments. We could start, as many times people start, with the second table, honor thy father and thy mother, onward through thou shalt not covet. We could speak of murder, we could speak of stealing, we could speak of lying, and all of those things are true. We could speak of sexual immorality, which everywhere is pronounced and increasingly celebrated. Think of some of Uh, the music industry, which celebrates all manner of unfaithfulness in sexual relations. Think of how it's put upon our children as if it's the normal thing to engage in all sorts of immorality. You can think of how life is little concerned for by men in this life. All those things are true, but think for a moment that that's the second table. That's that which is beneath the most important of things. And so then we think of our nation and we think of all of those sins against the first table that are more abhorrent in God's sight, which are more directly assaulting the glory of God. We think of the temples and shrines of idolatry that plague our land. And we think of our nation, which protects and promotes this kind of thing as if it's good for society. We think of the way in which the Sabbath is trampled upon and thrown down. God's holy day, a day that he's given for our good. And men would rather watch and play football or watch and play soccer or watch and do all of these things and call it good. And while it's just the way life is, not realizing that these things are flaunting defiance in the face of God. And brethren, what happens? Why do we make this? You think of profanity. It's almost impossible to go through a day, Lord willing, not in your own home, and not hear the name of God profaned. It's almost impossible, by the way, for us to go through a work day or a day of recreation and not hear God's name profaned, but think of this, and when it is profaned, not be troubled by it. Brethren, here's the point. There is a world of iniquity at work all around us. And to a great extent, we are unmoved at the extent and the degree of its profanity. And we would say, I'd rather live there. There are stories of missionaries who go and they're trying to find a place to live and so on, and they discover that, well, living here, the, the air is you know, stagnant, it's not moving, and they, they discover they're getting colds and sicknesses, and so they have to move elsewhere. Well, there are, in our own day, there are stories of gas from the ground that creep into uh, the basement, and it can have tremendously ill effects upon one's health. Now, imagine for a moment that you're looking for a house, And you go and you're saying, this is a house, it's great. Everything that I want is there. It's got the right number of bedrooms and bathrooms and space. And look at the park-like view that it has. And the person says, yep, I get it. All that's true. You know, there's this gas that's leaking into the basement that will cause you to receive cancer. And this cancer will be of such a sort that you will die. You know, would you look at your husband or your wife and say... You know, that's, that's significant. But the house has everything we want. 
The house has the space, the size, the look at the location, look at the scene. It's in walking distance to everything we could desire. We can literally walk from it to church. We can go to the shopping place. We can, your work is right around the corner. Look at all the friends that we would have and the playmates that my children would have. Look at the parks and the beautiful scenery, all that's there. So what's the big deal about this gas that is going to wreak all sorts of problems upon our physical health? Let's buy it. Let's move in. Here's the point. There are good things in this world because God has made them and sustained them. We have marriage, we have friends, we have the beauty of sunrises and sunsets, we have the beauty of mountains and rivers and oceans, and all of these things which are enjoyable and good. And we do not deny those things. We acknowledge those things. And yet, brethren, permeating the whole of this world is the air of rebellion against God. Permeating this world is the speech of profanity. Permeating this world is the testimony of defiance against God. Just as we would not move into a house that was guaranteed through its noxious gas to take our lives, so we would not seek to cleave to this world as it is because of the rebellion that is raised up against our God. The world says, that's what I want. Notice the desire of this type of life is for it to continue. The heart of Lot's wife was resting in Sodom. It's interesting. The desire is not so explicitly profane. We don't read anything about Lot's wife participating in the sins of Sodom. We don't read anything about Lot's wife like condoning the sins of Sodom. But what we see in her look, what we see in that desire expressed, is a sense in which her heart is saying, that's still where I long to be. I want that. There's some various ways that our culture sort of tries to work through this. And so there are songs and plays and books of literature that even by wicked men and women acknowledge the brokenness of a relationship and yet find something in it that is still to be desired. And so they perpetuate and carry on in spite of the fact of the harmful effects it's having upon their body, in spite of the fact of the harmful effects it's having upon their other relationships or whatever else. This is the point. This desire is a strong desire. Think of of what Lot's wife was told. Lot's wife in the home would have been told by these messengers, this city is going to be destroyed. And now, what's experienced? Lot's wife is grabbed by Lot, grabbed by the angels, and carried out. And she's strictly told, don't look back. Whatever you hear, whatever you think you hear, whatever else is going on, don't look back. So she's both told several times and told quite clearly of what's taking place and what she shouldn't be doing. And moreover, look at her life. She's actually, to some extent, following. She's not pulling back her hand from Lot and saying, don't take me, you can't force me. 
She's not mocking. She's not as her sons-in-law who think Lot is, as it were, speaking as one who's mocking. She's listening to. She's following after. She's actually, for a season, identified with the group that is being delivered. And yet her desire is firmly settled in the city of destruction. She went some way in the way of deliverance, but her heart was shackled to the prison of judgment and sin that Sodom was. This is somewhat instructive for us. In other words, we can't just say, well, I'm not taking part in all of the sins. You know, Lot's wife wasn't taking part in all of the sins. We can't just say, well, I'm actually identified with the church. Lot's wife for this moment was identified with the group of people, the congregation God was bringing out of the city of destruction. What was made known by her look back was her longing in her heart being secured there in the city of destruction. Why is that significant? Because the city of destruction was the city of sin. Her heart was attached to this place where sin was rife and full and was being judged. Well, what's the end of such a life that's lived against the light of the last day? Its end is that it shall lose it. This life desired, this life enjoyed, this life longed for shall be lost. It can't be preserved. It can't be kept. Notice, comprehensively it shall be lost. Christ doesn't say merely, you know, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose most of it, shall lose 90% of it, 95% of it, 99.9% of it. It's simply said, shall lose it. That life desire will be lost. All that was wicked will be lost. We can even say this, all that was good will be lost. All that was desirable will be lost. There's nothing wrong about Lot's wife loving her daughters. There's nothing wrong about Lot's wife having that thought about, well, my home is a special place. All of those things are normal and natural and in that sense, good. But all of that's lost. None of it's preserved. None of it's reserved for her. The wicked, abominable things are lost. Those things that, naturally speaking, are good are lost as well. All of it, comprehensively, is lost. Here's the point, of course, by way of application. It is the highest form of foolishness to set our affections on that which will be entirely taken from us. But notice, it's not just the things that are lost. It's one's own life. Whosoever shall seek to save his life. So it's not just the things in one's life that are lost. It's the life itself that is lost. And surely we see that both in Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt, a tower of judgment testified for generations. But we see that as well as Christ elsewhere testifies of the same. But notice, not only is it comprehensively lost, it is inescapably lost. There's nothing that Lot's wife could have done once that look betrayed the fact of where her heart was, 
to escape the judgment. It was the revelation of where her heart was. And there wasn't this angel saying to her, listen, Lot's wife, I told you once. Now I'm going to tell you again, you need to sever your affections from that city. No, at that point, she was inescapably, inescapably judged. Now, before moving on to the life lived in light of the last day, why is it that Christ says, remember? Why is it that Christ says to us, think on this? Why is it that Christ gives us this word of exhortation? Well, several things are clear. One, because there's a temptation to ignore such things and to set our hearts on this world. Paul says it in Colossians chapter 3, set your affections, your mind, your emotions, all your desires and thoughts upon things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and not on things below. Your heart is to be in heaven where Christ your Lord and Savior is. Your desires are to be in heaven where He reigns and from which He will come again. That's essentially what Christ is getting at. He's saying, my disciples will be tempted to neglect where the true treasure is to be found, where the true happiness is to be discovered, where the true hope and life is to be enjoyed. And so He's warning And he's encouraging and exhorting. Why else does he do it? You remember when Jonah was commissioned to go to Nineveh? And he first disobeys and goes the exact opposite way. And then the Lord humbles him and restores him. And then he goes again and he preaches. And he says, listen, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And then the king of Nineveh hears... Issues a fast, the people of God humble them, or the people of Nineveh humble themselves and repent, and God relents. Do you remember what Jonah says toward the end? He says, Isn't this that I said? I knew you were going to do this. Why else would you send me to warn this wicked and abominable city unless you were going to give them repentance? Now, there's something there, of course, that is to reprove us for that kind of approach. There's also an insight. God is giving his word of warning with a good purpose. He intends to help us. He's coming with a purpose to deliver us. He's calling us not to this excruciating torment, though there is a losing of our life, but he's calling us into the inexpressible joy of knowing a life that is to come. His purpose, in other words, is not to put us into a bitter frame and say, well, I guess I won't set my heart here, even though that's what I really want. He's calling us away from this world in order to know the joy of the world to come. So notice then, secondly, this life lived in light of the last day. What's the goal of a life in this world that's consciously lived in light of the day to come? Well, we can say, It's to honor the coming king. That's its goal. Its life is lived not by the dictates of this world, but rather by the instruction of the Lord. So notice it is expressed here in verse 33 as losing his life. Whosoever shall 
lose his life. It's a way of saying the world looks at it and says, what are you doing? You're making all the wrong decisions. You're not prioritizing your job. You're not prioritizing your family. You're not prioritizing your retirement and your finances and your entertainment and recreation. Why are you doing that? You've lost your mind. You're not functioning as you should. The world says you lose your life. Well, Christ says it elsewhere. When in Matthew's Gospel, he says that if you would be my disciple, you are to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Think of that expression. Deny yourself. There's a conscious engagement whereby the one who is truly Christ's disciple is saying to himself explicitly and clearly, no, not as I desire. Not what I think, not what I want, not my desires. I'm denying myself. Now, think of how opposite that is to the world's counsel. The world is everywhere saying, don't deny yourself. You deserve it. You need some me time. You need some special engagement. You need your own pampering. You need this new thing. You need this new toy. You need this new entertainment. You need to live and let loose a bit. You know, lighten up, enjoy, and satisfy your desires. And so you can hear people when they express like, you know, going to Las Vegas. And of course, there are things in Las Vegas that are certainly good and lawful and churches in Las Vegas for which we rejoice and pray that God would bless. But So commonly, the idea is, you know, we're just going to live carelessly for a season and satisfy our lusts and desires of whatever sort they are. And then we'll come back. And after all, this is what people do. And Christ is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you must say no to yourself. But he goes further. He says, you must take up your cross. And that's an expression the world today doesn't understand. And I don't just mean the world outside of the church. I mean, many within the church. Because to take up one's cross is to say, I'm carrying the instrument that will be my tortuous death. I'm willing to say, I will endure the excruciating torment of denying myself, being mocked and ridiculed by spouse, by parents, by family, by friends, by strangers, by the world, by others. I am dying to myself. And he says, follow me. In other words, following Christ is not something light and easy and always springtime. There is in this life, praise God, seasons of tremendous joy, outwardly and inwardly for the Christian, wherein we rejoice and we say, oh God, praise to your name that you've done this for me and that for me. And look how you've ordered my house and look how you've given me friends and other things and bless your name, but there are seasons in this life. It's important to emphasize that because Christian, there's a life to come where this will not be found. But in this life, there are seasons of tears and pain and heartache and brokenness and shame and difficulty and all manner of things. The psalmist calls it the valley of the shadow of death. And places wherein our enemies surround us and breathe curses upon us. And where we feel, as it were, alone and isolated. And yet, though the world is, as it were, saying, look what you've lost. The believer is saying, no, look what I've gained. I've gained Christ now. 
and I've gained heaven hereafter. This goal of honoring the coming king is actually tremendously helpful for us. You can think of it this way. If we lived in this land and there was a testimony of an invader that is coming and he's got nuclear weapons and he's got soldiers galore and all these things and this is coming to pass. We know it's coming. We don't know when. There'd be a sense of you know, concern and anxiety. Well, if you turn that message a little bit, you can see how actually it becomes a message of hope. What if our land were under the repressive regime of an invader who's overtaken our land? What if our land were, as it were, already invaded by enemies who have set up their own rules and governance and law and so on, and the one who is coming is the rightful king who is good and right. His law is just and right. All that he does is right and good and desirable. And we are his subjects. Well, there may be those who have joined in with the rebellious government. But if by God's grace we were still loyal to the true king, we would with joy expect his coming. And we would gladly speak of him and gladly identify with him whatever the wicked ones around us do. And this is the point. The activity of such a life is governed by the king, governed by his word, governed by hope. My king's coming. You can ridicule me. You can make fun of me. You can beat me if you want. But my king is coming. And so though I, in your estimation, and in a temporal sense may lose this life, Yet I am actually gaining the life that is coming. I'm gaining that which Christ is bringing. There is self-denial in this. Losing his life. Notice there's normalcy in it. So Christ makes this plain when he says, Listen, in that time there will be two men in one bed. One shall be taken, the other left. And two women shall be grinding, working at the grindstone. One shall be taken, the other left. And so there's normal routines, there's activity of work and so on that's taking place. And so it's not as if we set up shop and say, we're going to have our commune, we're not going to do normal work and other such things. No, there's a normal activity of lawful work and recreation. But the overall emphasis of such a life that's lived in light of the day to come is that it's oriented to the king who is coming. My thoughts, my speech, my activities, all things are now lived for him. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he says, you are bought with a price. And the believer knows that. I'm no longer my own, but I belong body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me so that my life in this time is now lived for him. Someone says, you know, what a miserable life you live as a Christian. You know, you don't let loose and have all this fun and so on. And the Christian says, you don't know what real joy is. To know the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, I've lost this and I've lost that and I suffer for this and I suffer for that, but I have Christ. And I know that when Christ comes, He's coming for me. And so my life, notice shall be preserved. This is the end 
of a life lived in self-denial and joy in the Holy Ghost and following and living upon Christ Jesus by faith, the end of such a life is that that life will be preserved. Not the life that we know in this world, but the life that we live by Christ. Think of it this way. The one who disregards the last day lives for this day alone. And Christ says they're going to lose that. But the one who disregards this day and lives for the last day will enjoy that. This world will be stripped and taken away. And yet, what will be taken away from the believer? Well, we could say it this way. What will the believer really lose? The believer won't lose Christ. The believer won't lose heaven. The believer won't lose eternal life. The believer won't lose fellowship with the Lord. The believer won't lose fellowship with the saints. The believer won't lose holiness and love and joy and gladness and rejoicing and praise and thanksgiving. What he will lose is sorrow and shame and brokenness and misery. All of that will be lost. But his life, which is in Christ, and by which he lived in this world, shall be preserved. Well, brethren, as we close, here are things for us, of course, not just to consider, but Lord willing, by his blessing, to be transformed by. We need to ask ourselves, you know, not is it okay for me to enjoy this lawful thing? That's not the question. That's obvious. If it's a lawful thing, we have every reason to enjoy it. We can eat, we can drink, we can have friends and family and play and so on, so long as it's free of sin. And we enjoy those things. But the question to ask is more difficult to answer. Do I desire these things more than I desire Christ and His things? Do I desire this world to continue, or do I desire the world to come to come? Now, it's not to say that a godly spouse isn't a gift of the Lord, or it's not to say that good food's not a gift of the Lord, and so we enjoy those things and we give thanks to God for those things. But it's to ask a more searching question, which is answered by the psalmist in Psalm 73. You remember Asaph, he sees the prosperity of the wicked and he's grieved, but then he's brought to see their end. And then he's brought to confess what is the confession of all true believers. Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in the heavens high but thee, O Lord, alone? And in the earth whom I desire besides thee, there is none. Here's the question to ask with sincerity and help by the Lord. Can I say that in truth? That of all that is in heaven, what I desire What I long for is God Himself. In this world, that which I ultimately have and delight in is God Himself. Because who is it that's coming? It's God Himself in the person of His Son. And the believer thus is able to rejoice in that hope. Why? Because the one who loves me and whom I love is coming for me and His people. You see, what's behind all of this is what the disciples, or rather the Pharisees were speaking of, the kingdom of God, which Christ then turned and spoke of, the day of the Son of Man. 
It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is actually central to this whole idea. Would I have Christ in His shame in this life in order that I may have Christ in His glory in the life to come? Or would I say the shame of Christ is too much for me, I'd rather glory in this life? If that's the case, Christ is saying, you'll lose it all. But for the one who says, whatever I lose in this life, so long as I have Christ, I am a happy man. I am a blessed woman. I am a rejoicing child or adult. I want Christ. That's what's behind all of this passage. Is Christ the desire of my life? If He is, there are several things that are quite clear. We will be willing to forsake sin. We'll be willing to have the world ridicule and make fun of us and so on. It's not fun. It's not even easy. But it's able to be endured because we have Christ. We long for Christ. I desire not to offend Christ. I desire to honor Christ because He's mine. And what's more, He's also coming again. And so to the believer who's struggling perhaps with temptation, here is a help for us. It is worthy of losing your life because in the end you actually preserve what is truly life. You maintain Christ and your soul. You maintain the enjoyment of that which will never know an end. And so as you look at the temptations that say just compromise a bit because of this or just compromise a bit because of that, realize what it is as the world and its chains appealing to you unto your destruction. Whereas Christ is saying, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, is an appeal for your soul's everlasting joy. The point is, when we live this life in light of the last, we live this life in light of unending joy and gladness because it's lived in light of Christ, whom to know is life everlasting. O believer, when the world ridicules you, you know, there'll be times when you need to answer and times when it's right to be silent, but whatever those circumstances are, here is a word for you to remember. That in following Christ and trusting Christ and in loving Christ, though all the world is taken from you, yet your life will be preserved. And what life is that? It's that life everlasting in and by our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, which life will know no end. Would you stand with me?